So welcome to Art in Orbit. And today we're going to be talking to someone. I'm going to let herself introduce herself because right after she does that, after she tells you her name and how she maybe how uh, she identifies herself as an artist or how she defines herself as an artist, I'm going to go a different route. So <laughs> let's get that so we know who we're talking to. And then we'll get on the road. So welcome okay. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lee Witherell, and I'm an artist based here in Florida in the United States. Um, and I work in a style called melancholic, which actually predates the Renaissance period um, mm -hmm. and loosely based on something that's attributed to Aristotle when he said that an idle mind breeds melancholy. So the goal is to have very complicated compositions so that your mind wanders around the, the canvas. Um, we've kind of, in modern years, uh, we've kind of reformatted it a little bit. Okay. And well, basically the melancholic style for me is more about the mood of the canvas and the colors in the canvas. Um, I do figurative art, so I don't do portraiture. Uh, but what I do is I interview people and then I look at the interviews and listen to them, and I pull emotions from the interviews, and then I make compositions based on those emotions. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, all right. So we've set the tone. We we have a broad idea of you, um, which is good. This is a good good way to start. You said you are located in Florida. Yes, uh, I'm in Spain right now, so we are six hours away and <laughs> enjoying this. Uh, worldwide interconnection at the moment. It's going to get better. Like, can you imagine, like, in, I don't know, a decade or two? Like, where are you located? I'm in Saturn. Oh, that's great. <laughs> One can only hope and imagine. <laughs> we'll see. Like, who, who could have imagined artificial intelligence, like, 20 years ago or 10 years and ago? And we're going to talk about that because I saw you are delving into that. And that's going to yeah. be an interesting part of the conversation okay. because... Uh, at least for what I've heard, many artists are taking a different route. It's like a no, 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 no. This right. is horrible. This is a disaster. So we go to that. But that's going to be later because I have first uh, a question like normally ask at, at the beginning or I should ask at the beginning. That's my intention, but I sometimes forget. So my question is, at what point in time in your history and how, if there is a specific how, did you begin to identify yourself as an artist? Uh, that's interesting, actually, because I've always identified myself as an artist uh, from my earliest years. Um, we, I grew up very poor. My family were cotton farmers, and so we never had much money. But drawing and making art, you could do that really cheap and for free, almost. Um, and so I always did, but I was always very private about it. I never went public with my art until 2021. Um, okay, that's recent. Yeah. yeah, my husband and I have been married for 35 years, and uh, none of his family knew through that whole time that I ever did art. That's how private I was about it. It was stayed with me. Um, but then after our daughter's death in 2021, she had always wanted me to go public. And um, there was a little local art show at a local gallery, and I thought, why not? And so I entered it, and it was accepted, and that started the whole journey. Right okay, there. so th th that's interesting in the sense that you always felt like an artist. Yes. But it didn't become didn't become your public persona or up right. until up to or up to until 2021. Yes. Yes. Okay. So what happened at that moment? It's just like the show appeared before from before your eyes and this was the right moment and I did it. Did someone push you? Did, were you thinking about that for? for a while and I asked that because I believe many many I cannot tell there's no no percentage there I guess but there are many artists who don't feel like it or they do art but they don't identify themselves as an artist or they don't feel they can meet someone at uh, whatever event and say oh what do you do I'm an engineer oh what about yourself I'm an artist right right I, I think for me it was more about just finally being authentic, actually. I had spent many years being a college professor because both of my degrees, uh, my bachelor's and my master's are in literature, but they okay. both have a fine art component to them. So even in college, I was doing it. Um, 
But I guess with with our daughter um, dying, um, she was killed in a car accident. So it wasn't anything mm-hmm. we could be prepared for. Um, I just kind of thought at that moment, I was like, you know what? It's time to to just drop any facade and just, you know, just be that true, authentic self. And that's actually started a journey that with the help of our grief counselor, who we still see um, every week, and with this online support group that I had joined very early, um, with, you know, all of that support, it's been an evolving kind of journey. And so it's identified as an artist allows me to open up to people and it allows me to, um, in turn, let people come in uh, to my space, which I was always very guarded with before. And now I'm not so guarded anymore with it. Yeah. So, and it's an interest. It's an interesting place to be. It really it's, it's like, but it's interesting because I am married to an engineer. So when people hear that and then they hear that I'm an artist, they go, "Oh, well, that's interesting." <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, it's an it, yeah yeah it's an interesting identity to encompass. It really is. So yeah. I, I I talk to people or heard interviews because I wasn't doing the show at the beginning. I'm not doing it now, but I I was always present and listening to the interviews and all that. And I found people that uh, just about the same time you did for different reasons or different contexts, but there was one thing we all shared with was, was the pandemic. And it seems that many people decided to explore their artistic vein yeah. at that time. Yeah. And I talked to an artist in Austria He said, well, after the pandemic, I just, I'm going to dare to define myself as an artist. Because she, yep. she had been actually, uh, yeah, university professor. I don't remember her field. And I don't think it was connected. I think it was chemistry, actually. Well, the oils and the paints, maybe. <laughs> she created yeah, them. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that. I don't know. But, okay. So we have set some themes on the on the table. So my first yeah. question uh, in terms of theme, you talked about melancholy mm-hmm. and, and how it is part of the way you do art. Right. How, okay. I believe some people upon hearing that would mm-hmm. think, okay, but this is probably a person who is always melancholic and tending to sadness, which probably is, I let you tell me about it. It's not the same thing. Melancholy right. and sadness, it's not the same thing right. to me, but I let you talk about it. Like, yeah. what draws you to melancholy? What's what's the difference between melancholy and sadness? And right. if there is one, because right. you will tell me, and how did that become your way of doing art? Did you do other explorations? How did you get to that? Well, um, for me, the difference between melancholic and sadness and depression is definitely there is a difference. There is a difference. For me, melancholy is just more about being just kind of mellow and, you know, not really tended towards hyperness and, you know, kind of that, you know, my, my grandmother would call it putting your your public face on to where you're always smiling and you're always happy. Yeah. Nobody ever sees anything on the inside. But for depression and sadness, obviously, that's a whole different realm. So for me to use the melancholic, uh, like I said before, it's about the colors. It's about really just not putting on that public face and just letting the compositions speak for wherever my emotions are at at that time. Um, and then also letting the compositions speak for wherever the emotions are from the interview that I'm using as the inspiration for my canvas as well. But for me, I use a lot of earth tones. I use a lot of muted colors. I blend a lot. I don't really have those defined brush strokes you see a lot of artists having and things yeah. like that. For me, it's more about the blending. It's more about not making any one thing stand out, but making the whole composition just kind of meld as a whole. And so I don't want people to look at my compositions and feel sad. There's some that they will. I mean, that's just inevitable. And yeah. But I also don't want to tell people what those compositions are. So a lot of my compositions are untitled for that reason. I want them to bring their emotions into the composition and feel connected on that level. So that's really why I do that melancholic style because it enables me to bring those emotions into that where I don't really get that. I actually started out doing fluid art, which was a fun experiment. And there's no. there's two fluid art. People think it's just throwing paint on a canvas. Yeah, it's really not. <laughs> that's not it at all. 
Um, but I very quickly realized that well, with fluid art, it's about chaos and it's about no control. And I really wanted to control the narrative of the canvases that I'm creating for myself. And that way people can put their narrative into the canvas as they see it. Does that make because sense? Yes, 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 because uh, and and the idea which I read, I mean, you you are uh, I don't know a fan or inspired by Edgar Degas, which is yeah. what I read. Like, it's not what you feel; it's what what you make others see or feel yes. through it, yes. and which might be different for everyone, exactly. right? Or at least slightly different, but different. But there's probably a similarity in in those feelings. I mean, yeah. the difference might be the particularity of the person. But the mood mm -hmm. is yes. there. So what I got from looking at your at your work and at your paintings was mm -hmm. not sadness at all. I didn't get sadness. What I well, got is I I think I believe I want to talk to these people. Yeah. Like do you have yeah. time? You do, do you have like an hour for coffee? Let's sit and talk. <laughs> yeah. That's what I felt. Not because of friendliness or because of joy, but I believe these people have things to say. And I like to hear what they have to say. That's what I got. That's perfect. I really like that. One of my favorite things when my things are on display is to actually not be front and center, but just kind of hang around in the background and listen to what people are saying about what they're viewing. Um, because like I said, I don't want to drive their conversation. I no. want to bring their personalities, their emotions into it. So yeah, that's perfect. So yeah. I love, oh, good, I love good, it. I love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> good, and I like, but but there's a strength in your painting that that people might think that melancholy it might be some kind of like a weak feeling, and it is not. I saw a strength in your paintings. I'm I'm hoping to to bring that through because a lot of people look at grieving parents, and they automatically think that we are falling apart all the time, 24 hours a day, and obviously grief grief doesn't really have a hierarchy but it does have differences. So uh, a grieving parent really is not something that somebody who's lost a parent can really relate to because mm. they're very different emotions and feelings. Yeah. Um, so for me to, to make these, these canvases and for, for someone like, for like yourself, when you say you really want to talk to these people, they do have stories to, to tell. And the interviews that I did with a lot of these canvases that I'm producing, those are the stories stories of real people and they they do have stories to tell so yeah i love that. <laughs> great can, can you tell me again let's revisit your process about the interview and all of that can you yeah. walk us through how, how that happens if there yeah. is like a common theme or it, maybe it's different every time like you know you do do you record it do you listen to it later do you have it transcribed do you work for memory <laughs> do you call them back and said well i remember this yeah because i i, I, I find it a super interesting process i i really liked what you said Well, the, the, the whole idea actually was born about two months after our daughter died, because obviously my husband and I are both academics. And the first thing academics do when something like this happens is we look for resources to help us, to help with it. Right. So we were looking for grief groups that we could go to in person. We were, you know, we already had our grief counselor and we very quickly understood that for us as non-faithful people, my husband is an actual atheist and I'm agnostic mm -hmm. we really could not find a group that we really felt comfortable voicing how we felt um so i found on facebook of places yeah. i found a grief group called parents grief beyond belief and literally it's one that is open for everyone but their big thing is you know don't talk about personal religion in in that just talk about what you're going through just talk about your experiences And so the people in there, you don't know if they're atheist, agnostic, religious, you don't know. Um, but what I did was I started, you know, interacting with this group and very quickly, a very common thing came out in that no one beyond maybe a month, no one wants to talk about their children after that. And it's not malicious. It's not mean. It's, it's because they don't know what to do with it. You know, if you're a parent who hasn't lost a child, You don't know how that feels. So a lot of times you might be afraid to bring it up, thinking that that other parent's going to fall apart. You don't want to be. So it's just, it's just this awkwardness. Um, so the idea was born to make this huge canvas, which is five feet wide and six feet tall. 
And um, you might have seen it on the Invisibility Project yeah, website. Yeah. That's the one that I made from 17 interviews with parents from that group, uh, Parents Brief Beyond Belief. And we we did the Zoom recordings like this. And so I um, we went back and we took the audio from the recordings and I can listen to them. They're actually they're actually archived on the website. So you can actually hear the actual people okay. talking. Um and with their permission, um, you know, they signed a waiver saying that, you know, it can always be used and things like that. So that was the first part of the project. And it was just a very interesting process in Portugal to be by myself in this huge studio that Mesahana is a little tiny community of like eight hundred people. Um, but they gave me just the biggest studio they possibly could find because of the size of this canvas. It was yeah, huge. Okay. Um, but I just was there on my own until the last week uh, when my husband joined me that last week of that month. And so I was just there with the recordings. And it was like being in the room with these 17 people. And I could listen to them as I'm painting and things like that. And it was a, it was a neat and interesting space to, to be in. Which sounds really self-indulgent, to be honest with you. Um, not a lot of artists get an opportunity to do something like that. Um, but it was it was the best environment that I could possibly be in to do that painting. There were no distractions. And the people of Mesahana were just, they were curious. They were fascinated. They were wonderful people. I butchered their language for an entire month, mm-hmm. but nobody agree with me. It was really nice. <laughs> I was like, thank okay. you very much. Let, let's put some, some uh, concrete stones there to to help the listener and ourselves to grasp the story say you said you were in portugal to turn those conversations into your paintings into into this big canvas okay when when did that happen and why portugal that was may of this year so it was may of 2023 and actually it was because i had a curator at that time and she wanted me to get out of my studio which is actually in my home we bought a house big enough where i have a studio in my home okay me to get out of my studio and get out of an environment I was comfortable in to break boundaries. And she was right. Those boundaries, they needed to be broken um, because I was just feeling very restrained and I really didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so being in Portugal um, on my own, I was able to just go inward and really just sit with any emotions that I was feeling at the time and It was a very emotional canvas to do because my feelings are also in in this. It was very, very emotional. Um, But I was just able to do that. There was nobody there. Um, You know, my husband was still back here in the States. Um, Didn't have any friends there. There there were just other artists there who were so great at giving tips. You know, when you got stuck, you could ask somebody. It was really, really nice. Um, But that was the only only thing that I had to do. That was my task. And why Portugal? Um, I don't know why Portugal, honestly. Like I said, my curator found the residency. Yeah. And I thought when she said get out of my studio, I thought she meant go to the beach because we live right here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. We got the beach. Like, and, well, and I'm like, oh, you mean another country. Okay. Yeah. But he knew that I like to travel uh, abroad. My husband and I do it quite often. We really like to travel. Um, But I had never, until then, I had never traveled on my own abroad until then. And that was another interesting experience to be in a whole new country where you didn't speak the language, you knew nothing about it. I didn't have a car because you didn't need one. And, you know, that got this emotional canvas to do. So that was the whole point. It was, it was a good, it was a good idea. She had a brilliant idea. <laughs> so it was a very right. good idea. And and so what I, about the, the, how, how's the, the process itself? If there is a way to, to describe it, you got the records, you got the big canvas. What happens in between? How how do you hear the recordings while you're painting? How does do, that work? Do. So this is interesting because now my husband, uh, he has worked in tech his whole life. Yeah. So he was with IBM. He's he's a he's a network um, architect, so he knows a lot about tech. I discovered eons before this. I found out that I was fascinated with AI. I'm just I'm fascinated with it. I don't know why. But I found out that they had image generators. Yeah. That you now the controversy is people are saying that if an artist uses that, then all they're doing is just tracing and copying. Boy, that is not the process. That is not how that works. Okay. Well, I was able to use just a very basic free image generator, which doesn't have the bells and whistles. I was able to use that image generator 
and I was able to tell it kind of what I wanted to see for each image. Yeah. And then as the generator was generating images based off of photographs I provided. So I didn't go out looking for other people's art. I provided photographs and okay. I provided images of my own art. Um, I was able to actually start visualizing these compositions that would come up. And then I was able to pick the images that I liked. And from there, I was able to sketch those the image and adjust it and arrange it and do what I wanted to do with it on the actual canvas. I've never been a big sketchbook person. I don't know why. I, I don't know. I don't know wow. why. I'm, I just never been one. But through using that process of listening to the images, talking to the generator, figuring out the different voice prompts, um, figuring out, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of legal issues, copyright and all that other good jazz. I didn't want the generator going out and finding somebody else's style and then yeah. me, oh, I like that, and then just copying that. It had to be my style. And that's how I did that was by providing it photographs, providing photographs of things I've done. Um, you know, I even I even uploaded a couple of the interviews themselves and it listened to that. And yeah. it was able to come up with some very interesting, you know, computers, they they think ways that we don't. Especially did. They also believe that humans have like eleven fingers and twenty seven toes. I've seen that. Right. You know, you know what? What? Well, an issue. Recently, I haven't done much with uh, generating images except for fun, right. like I, talking something to a friend to WhatsApp and whatever. And there's, oh, I'm gonna create an image and send it back just <laughs> yeah, right. to get a laugh out of it. Right. Why it's so difficult for them to put the right when you ask for words? Yeah. Why do they mess it up? I don't get it. If you ask, yeah, I, I wanted to say baby. Why do you yeah. write baby with two B's in the middle? Why do you put an H at the end? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have do you have an idea why that happens? <laughs> it's it's really weird because I think computers as a whole, I think that they just don't understand that they can't understand humanity. They will never understand humanity, obviously. Yeah. And I think that's where the disconnect comes in. Because you'll also find that the AIs have filters built in the developers have built in filters you can't say certain words because it'll tell you that it's a restricted image because they don't want like pedophiles and things like that yeah. making images um so yeah, on the image generators i use i couldn't use the word baby because it would filter it out <laughs> it would yeah. say an illegal image and i'm like i was literally talking about an actual infant you know but you can use the word infant you can't use the word baby you can use the word undergarment, but you can't use the word bra. It's weird. <laughs> it's a very strange... Well, something similar happened to me like a couple of weeks ago. Well, well I lead a whole uh, team of people doing translation and and, and localization of uh, all kinds of material, mostly what? from English into Spanish, sometimes backwards too. But I was like, we were translating a large, large file about a... Well, a crime case in, in Mexico, in Cancun. And I put some information because I wanted the, the in, in this case it was ChatGPT, to translate some parts, like looking for the right terminology, which I would decide later how to, if it, that worked or whatever. But it said, this content seems too aggressive. I cannot do this. And I said, this is, for, and I said, okay, well, this is for a journalistic work. Oh, I'm sorry. And then it came out. It's <laughs> like, come on. Is it that easy? I know, right? It, it yeah. is a little insane. It's a little insane. And they yeah, are but, but it's fun. It's fun. Like, I understand. I understand a, a little bit your your <laughs> approach to because I really yesterday a friend wrote me something in German. And I said oh. to I said to Chad GPT. No, I, I knew what it was because it was very simple. And I oh. asked Chad GPT like give me some gibberish that looks like German. And it said, sorry, I cannot do that. <laughs> okay, then translate to German this sentence. If a flower had wheels, it would have to change the air pressure every day at noon. Something like that. <laughs> and then it gave me that senseless German thing. But but it's a very interesting. No, I think, yeah, AI is, uh, is opening a very interesting interesting yeah. era in, in, in yes. mankind. In I, well, it's going to come up. It's going to come with some negatives too. But let's get back to you, Lee. Okay. So one thing when I, when we started talking about melancholy, uh, I believe like when people get your sight, 
let, let's say they, they are unaware of you. So <laughs> they see this picture of a very happy and joyful person, which you are, that's what I get from you. So the picture is reflects you perfectly. And then they see the description about melancholy. So it seems like a disconnect. And we've already talked about it. But have you had any any comments about that? I real I have actually. I actually had someone um actually ask me if I was putting on a persona when I was doing my art or if yeah. I put it on a persona in real life because they could not reconcile those two things. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, it's it's the same person. Everybody has all these different sides to them. And it just kind of depends on the mood of the day, what you're doing. Um, yeah, I, it's it's an interesting thing because I, I do tend to spend most of my life um, trying to be as joyful as possible. We only get one life to live. So, you know, try not to spend too much of it, you know, yeah. uh, sad and angry. But, um, you know, sometimes it happens. <laughs> but it's, it is a disconnect. And people do have a hard time connecting those two, especially with some of the images that I'm working on now. So they, they do have a hard time. But evidently, you don't feel there's a disconnect. I don't. Right? It's no. just a different facet. Yeah, it's just a different side of me. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the authentic side that nobody really ever saw because I hid that side very well for oh, yeah, you did? the majority of my life. Yeah, I did. Because I was raised and taught that, you know, good girls and people that want, want to be around, you know, if you want people around you, you yeah. have to be, you have to be joyful. You can't show people your emotions and feelings. And um, growing up the way that I did in the part of the country that I grew up in, Yeah. That was all something that you kept very private into yourself. Um, so yeah, I'm just now that's I think that's why I identify as an artist, actually, because it is more freeing uh to to describe yourself as an artist because people kind of automatically expect artists to be emotional for some reason. There's a stereotype. Yeah. And so it's much easier to bridge that disconnect when you say, No, I'm an artist. It's it's much easier to do. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. I don't know. To me, melancholy is is beautiful. Yeah. I like when it. I felt like that, uh, I, now that I come to think of it, it probably hasn't happened in quite a while, in quite a, maybe a few years even. But right. there was a point where I could identify it. But it was, it was weird because yes, this was, there was this quietness uh-huh. and it wasn't fast. There's no speed there. But But it's at the same time it's enjoyable. That's what I that's what I found. Yeah, I find that in those melancholic times where I am just, you know, in the quiet times, that's when I can feel most intensely my actual self. Yeah. And I feel like I'm I'm more in touch with not only my world, but the world at large as well. So it is an interesting feeling. <laughs> Going back a little bit to the process and connected and connecting it to, to that, do the faces that appear on on your work do they resemble the original people they were created from or about no they do not okay. um and i actually do that on purpose because again i think that people look at people and they look at a photo or they they know them and i feel like that there would be a disconnect between what we were talking about in the interviews and maybe what people in real life would see or would know yes. about So I wanted the images to reflect nothing but the emotions. So every image on that canvas, it's the emotion that you're seeing, not anything else. So yeah, I didn't want them to resemble anybody. So, and that's also to portraiture. Nobody ever thinks their nose is as big as it is or their yeah. ears as big as they are. So right. it's very difficult to make people happy with portraiture. So I don't even want to mess with that. <laughs> and uh, about seeing or or you finding out what other people see in your in your work have you had many surprises like whoa really that's what you get there yeah in a I, good I, or bad way or just surprising yeah surprising i actually have not had any bad reactions to my work the only the only thing that i am delving into um social topics here in america that i think probably the rest of the world would kind of question why is this a controversy But because America was founded on evangelicalism, basically, yeah. you know, everybody's off. Um, so some of those canvases are eliciting reactions of, I had no idea that was down there. And um, but they're not negative reactions. They're just they're just surprised because there's a, a contemplation, a conversation waiting to happen. 
And they're very surprised by these because these canvases are centering around uh, non-heteronormative relationships. So yeah. relationships that are outside the boundary of male-female, those types of relationships. And they know that I'm married. You know, most people know I'm married. And, they, and they're just like, huh. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, artists are supposed to create conversations. Yeah. Art, art should say something to you. Um, and, and it's up to you to what it says. But it should say something. Um, so that's, yeah, <laughs> so that, long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. The long answer is that is like, I wanted you to, to get that sense of what that, yeah. that surprise was like for you. Yeah. And, and it is, it's always fun. I'm always, I, I usually am very amused and it's fun to hear people react. So I, it's nice. So I like it. And <laughs> when you create, create those, those canvases like from from <laughs> i asked you do they resemble the people you said no yeah what about when the people that gave you the interview see the result what 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 have you seen um it's it's been very interesting because they knew up front that they weren't going to be portraits so they already knew that they weren't going to yes. resemble them but so many of them had such an emotional reaction when they saw the canvas and when they saw the, what their interview, you know, represented. And I did not have to tell anyone which image was representative of their interview, which oh. that made me very happy. Okay. Oh, right. Because they saw them all at once. The, the they big did. Canvas. And, and okay. they were able to pick out their interview image from all those images. And they were right 100% of the time, which is nice. That means I did my job. So that was actually really affirming for me. Um, but they they all had very emotional reactions because they they saw their emotions in paint on this canvas and they knew that people were going to be seeing it and they were going to be reacting to it and that's that was the whole point. Everyone involved in this project, which is now going into part two of the project, that was part one. Now we're into part two. The whole point is to have like an education an educational conversation about grief and how it affects people and how it affects your life and how to talk to people and not just pretend it doesn't exist because here in America, that's kind of what we do. We pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. And it does. It's the, you know, birth and death are the only common factors we all share with everything. If you know, if it exists, it's born and it dies. That's it, <laughs> you know? And I think to leave that conversation out of life is, is not, it's not good. And it makes a lot of us feel very isolated. Um, and it makes, and sometimes it makes it feel like um, our griefs and our children have been forgotten in time. And that's not right because they haven't been. It's just that nobody really knows how to treat the topic. So that's the, that's the goal of the project is for that, for the shows to elicit conversations. And so far it's been successful. I'm in the process of working on part two. Um, so we'll see if that's as successful as part one. Film. So we'll have to see. <laughs> Tell me about the Invisibility Project. What is it? Okay. The Invisibility Project, like I said, it was born from that desire to start that conversation about how to talk to grieving parents. Yeah. Uh, and then um, my curator, when she first saw my art, she talked about making it a nonprofit. So that way we could, you know, get funding and things like that. It's a very complicated process for nonprofit. It hasn't been funded yet. It takes a long time, but it literally is a nonprofit. Um, and then what we can do is I can do projects within this system, this nonprofit, and I can do these projects related to um, this subject matter. So I can propose new things. Like, like I said, part two is going on right now. And part two is taking the interviews and doing individual canvas composition from selected interviews. Okay. Uh, so there'll be about 10 of those. And I've got in my studio, I've got about eight sketched out right now on canvases and they're, they're tacked up on various parts of my walls. It looks, I'm like, oh, they're surrounding me. Yeah. But, um, so that's part two. And so that's what the, that's what the invisibility project is for. Um, I don't, you know, my, um, the, the woman who was doing the curating for me, um, you know, she had envisioned some other things with it, but I think honestly, I'm scaling it back a little bit to be just about 
connecting with people and and doing the art and using the art and the interviews to connect with people so that their personal stories can be heard. Uh, I think that's very important. Most most of us have counselors. Most of us have that type of thing. And that, like I said, that Facebook group that we're all part of is an amazing support source. It's absolutely amazing. They do a wonderful job of the administration of this thing. Um, and that's where I connected with all of these people. And these these parents were wonderful. They were they were so open and so raw. And it was just the interviews were just amazing to listen to. And they all had very good points that I do think uh, need to be a conversation. So I'm hoping one day to do a TED talk. I'd love to do a TED talk. I see some like that. Yeah, yeah. Have to get that that out there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. 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 You, you mentioned before when we were talking about about the the fact of losing a child and how after I don't know if you said one month or two months people just Look. didn't talk to you about it because well for different reasons I, I'm thinking that one of them and which is a small sense or a small little feeling I get when going on on that subject is that well I have a 19 year old and a 17 year old both girls Okay. So I guess the closest it seems to be to my own reality in the sense that, okay, hold on. We're talking about a young female. They are close to me. I'm, I'm of, of course, just tr trying to put that in black and white, let's say, right. right? To interpret what I what I feel is like, I don't want that to be even a possibility. I don't want right. to even consider it. So right. by approaching the subject, it mm -hmm. becomes a little bit real and yes. and that's a scary so i believe many people or probably even most consciously not knowing or unknowingly they are like trying to get away from that yeah and in in a on a different scale but uh maybe with a small kind of similarity in emotions i feel that when my 17 year old was born, she was born with Down syndrome and we had absolutely no idea about it. So, and a lot of people just backed away. And yeah. we sometimes may interpret, well, they are bad people. They don't want to think about you. They don't want, it's they don't know what to do with it. So right. they just step away, which unfortunately 17 years later, actually very, a long time ago already, I've said, well, in, in that case of her, uh, it's it's been amazing. And if I'm born again, I want to make sure she is in my life again. She's amazing. It's spectacular. But let's go back to this then. So maybe it is, okay, that scary, painful reality does exist and people want to stay as far away from it as possible. That's a very true statement, a very astute observation, because, you know, obviously when your children are born, them dying is the last thing you think about, because right. the circle of life is you're born, then you have children, then you die and they bury you. That's the yeah. circle, right? It's not supposed to be the other way around. And I do think fear plays a huge part in uh, people doing that. And it's, it's odd because it's not just parents who suffer from this. Our, uh, we have two children. Um, our daughter, she was 32 when she died, but uh, our son, he's, he was 31 when she died. They were 13 months apart to the day mm. in that. So he never knew a day without his sister. And he was surprised at how many of their friends, because they were so close in age, they shared birds. He was amazed at how many of them went silent after she died. And he's a counselor. And he had always been there for everybody and their things. And he said it was it was like a land of crickets when I needed yeah. help. And of course, he's he's married. Our daughter-in-law is wonderful. And they've been married for a very long time. And so, of course, she, they have each other. But she said the same thing. So I thought that's interesting that it's not just parents who suffer from that. But my son and daughter-in-law did. My, my mother, as her grandmother, also yeah. saw that to a smaller degree. But um, it was mostly me and my husband that I didn't feel that the most so um, out of everyone. But I do think it's fear. I think you're right. It's a mortality is a terrible, scary thing to look at. And no one really wants to be forced to look at it, that's for sure. Um, you know but, what? And philosophically, at some point, I, I began to think, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's my reality, but I began to think it should not be that hard. No. 
No, it shouldn't be. There's like, actually there's a there's a hospice nurse that is on TikTok. I like she just read about her yesterday. Mm-hmm. She is literally making videos talking about what she sees in the last days of someone's life because she's trying to make it where it's not scary, where this is what's happening and this is why. And she feels like through education, it won't be as scary for people to to think about or to witness or to have to go through. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. I I applaud her for doing that. That's a hard thing to do. Uh, And I think for us as parents, we want to make sure that people do understand that our children were they were they were here they were they were people they had their emotions i i said there was day one i would not angelicize my daughter because i think to do that would be a disservice to her but she was a complicated human being she was an artist herself she was a complicated woman she was yeah but she was real and i always want people to remember her as a real person not some perfect angelic creature that was here on this earth she was real. Um, and so, you know, uh, the the canvas, this one, that one's called We Are the Story for a reason, because we want people not to think about this is a story of our children dying, but we want people to understand that we're trying to tell the story of our children living. You know, we're trying to tell the story that they lived, they were a part of us, they will always be that way. They will always be there. And that's why I, I named it that. So yeah. Lee, and and if there's someone listening who maybe has had a similar experience, um, unfortunately, in the recent times, or maybe not recent, but yeah. they just have not been able to manage it or have not been able to evolve, make it evolve somehow. Right. What would you say? What would you tell them? Well, first thing I would tell them is that if they're not in counseling, they really need to find a counselor we connect with someone that they can actually talk to and be honest with. The support groups, like the online support group and Facebook, is a wonderful platform because you can literally type anything you're feeling at any given time of the day and somebody is there. Somebody is looking at it at that moment and it's usually what you need to hear at that moment. And it's it's kind of amazing. But I would also tell them too that Grief is such a unique human experience. No two people are ever going to be alike in their grieving process. Even my husband and I, you know, having been married so long, and you know, and he this this is her father, you know, that's that's yeah. his daughter. We grieve in very different ways. And this is why you do see a lot of marriages and relationships don't survive this, because I think people think that grief is one thing and it's not. There's no one size fits all. Um, so I would tell those people that they need to be kind to themselves and they need to understand that if they're grieving a child, that's never going to stop. You don't stop. That's that's the one grief that really does not stop. But it also doesn't have to torment you for the rest of your life. You can find ways to honor your child's memory. You can find ways to honor their life by by living is how I honor my daughter's life. She would She would have been mortified if she thought in any way, shape, or form that her father and I would just be falling apart and just waiting to die. That would just, that would just mortify her. So by living, we honor that. But individual people have to find their own ways to navigate their way in this, you know, my my husband kind of called it like a boggy creek. It's like you're just navigating and sludging your way through this bog. And eventually you come to places that are, are light filled and, you know, they're, but they can be temporary and you can be right back in the bog again and you've got to navigate that. And I think that is a very good analogy um, on how to live. Let me, let me ask you um, an additional thing about that or maybe ask it in a different way. Because I feel, let's say that there's this person listening right now right. that is in that situation, whether recent or just stuck in it. Uh, this person maybe could say, okay, I understand all of that. I understand I could go to the group. I understand I could get counseling and talk about it. But what's what difference is that going to make? What can I aspire to? What's at the other side of that? That is, um, that's an unanswered question. I mean, there there really is no answer to that question because quite honestly, I'm, and I'm not that far into this, but some of the people that I interviewed were 
you know, 10, 15 years into this process, right? Um, I think the most was 17 years, because I think that was mm-hmm. the law. Um, they're still not on the other side. A lot of them believe that there is no other side, that this is now the reality we live in is the one we inhabit, and we have to we have to find a way to live in that reality. That because um, because I love when people tell me, and and they will meaning well, they always mean well, but they'll always say, "Well, when you're through the grieving process, I you know in my head it's not a process. This is this is what this is going to be." And I don't really anticipate this ever being something that is that the, there's another solitude to because the reality is we were a family of four, five with our daughter-in-law, and now we're a family of three, four with our daughter-in-law. Yeah, that's the reality. No one's ever going to replace that. And um, I I don't see how you can get to the other side of of that. So I think I would tell somebody who's like, how do I get to the other side? I think my advice would be stop looking for the other side. Get get used to and learn how to function on a side that you're on because it may be the only side you will see. So learn how to live now. That would I think that would be probably what I would say. And and what you said before, which which I think is a very good way to to think about what could happen is it doesn't have to torment you for the rest of your life. No, it does not. And and my husband and I actually we were just talking about that yesterday because you know it's the holiday season and this is the hardest part of the year for me. Um, and I was telling him that yesterday, and he said, and and he talked about that because I think he feels bad because uh, I'm he's very comfortable with me being the voice for our family um, to be the the face of this. He's a very private person. He grieves very privately. Um, but, you know, he helps me with everything and stuff like that. He's very private about it. But, you know, he says, sometimes he says, I feel like people look at me and they expect that I'm still going to be this tormented soul. And he said, there are days I just don't feel that torment. And he says, sometimes it makes him feel guilty. And I don't yeah. think that, I don't think it should. I don't think that we should feel guilty about anything we feel at any given time. It's just part of it. That's it. She <laughs> just is. The, where are you going as an artist now, do you think you're going to stay on the same path? What do you what do you envision yeah. for yourself? You know, to be honest with you, I do see this being a long-term project, honestly. But I have a couple of other uh, projects that I'm also working on at the same time. I think that's a pretty common thing for artists. I don't think we work on just one thing at a time. I think we all have kind of artistic ADHD, if you really want to think about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm working on a project about AI, actually. Oh, and I what I'm doing tell me, is tell I'm, me. Yeah, I'm I'm finding developers of AI, people who are working with AI, and I'm asking them the ridiculous question of what happens if it becomes sentient. There mm-hmm. are developers who believe that some of these systems have already become sentient. And then that's when everybody's Can fears. I ask you just one one little question there? Have they yeah. become or do they feel like that to us? How no, do you they, they define that? Them. Okay, and okay. How they define that is they they say that um, there's a couple of systems that can now speak to you and converse with you outside of their programming. So the things they're talking about were never programmed by the developers into. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. They're learning about us. I mean, even systems as small as our home automation systems, they're always listening. They're always learning. They're always evolving. But that project for me is what if AI became sentient and in that process became its own individual species? As human beings, historically speaking, we don't deal with change very well. <laughs> oh, there's a whole long history of that. Yeah. So I'm making a series of canvases exploring the everyday of what that could look like. Like, you know, there, I'm sure there would be people who would treat uh, sentient beings as regular, ordinary, everyday people, you know, be, it would just be a thing, but I'm positive there would be people who want to take advantage of them as well. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a whole series of different types of everyday situations you could see, like, you know, people are like artists, especially, or always say they're going to take our jobs. They're going to bubble. They're not. I mean, they can't mimic the human emotions. So they're, but 
there are jobs it could take. And how would that feel? Um, you know, how would you feel if your nanny for your children was an AI? You know, how would that feel? Could you trust that your nanny would have that connection to want to be that protect, you know, just all these things. And these developers are interesting to talk to because they, they, they've been thinking the same thing. <laughs> so yeah. they're being thought to. And then the other project is the non-heteronormative uh, relationships, which falls into the LGBTQ plus side of life. Um, because everybody knows the LGBTQ, but nobody really thinks about the plus. Nobody thinks about what that is. That encompasses everything else from non-monogamy to polyamory to asexuality to all of these things that I'm having to learn about as a 54-year-old woman. This yeah. was not about vocabulary growing up. You yeah. know, learn. And it's very interesting how people respond to that. And we live in a very conservative part of Florida. It's very conservative. Um, there's there's a lot of the older generation, a lot of retired people here. They're very conservative. So they don't really take well to canvases showing a gay couple or a lesbian couple or some other outside the norm situation. So those canvases will probably be for you know New York City, Los Angeles. I just yeah. got a gallery in Los Angeles that I can do long distance. Um, you know, there's, I've, there's a, a piece I've got showing right now in all the weird places, Lubbock, Texas, and it's from the non-heteronormative, uh, series. Um, you know, there's, there's all these things. And I think Europe will be a big market for that series as well. I think overseas. Um, I just, I don't know. I just have an odd feeling it'll be a lot more friendly than a year. Um, but it's an interesting, I feel like as an artist, I feel like that's almost our job. Our job is to explore these questions that people are uncomfortable asking and then to explore why are we uncomfortable with these questions what is it about these situations that make us squirm and that make us want to turn our turn our eyes away yeah and i don't think we should i mean you know art is about showing people a side of life that they may not want to see but that maybe they need to see you know that's my view anyway so <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Right. And, and maybe in 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 many aspects Seeing that is not that scary as they thought. Exactly. I'm a big believer that if you are scared of something, you need to educate yourself as much as you possibly can about that thing you're scared of to see if you still should be scared of it. That's what I tell artists who talk about AI being, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. And I'm like, why? Have you, have you read about it? Do you know anything about it? Have you learned it? Our great masters in history use tools. Do you really think that Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel just out of his head? No, yeah. he had a little tool that he used. I mean, this, these are proven facts. And I'm like, so why not just look at using AI as another tool? It's just something else to broaden our horizons and to expand our curiosities. Uh, but not a lot of people think like that, I think. Okay, I have an, if, uh, an, an additional question on, on that point, but just like very broad, maybe. <laughs> and it is that I'm getting the feeling, not really <laughs> that I have proof of it, that with AI, it's being reinforced maybe what uh, we, uh, society, human beings, uh, learned in a difficult way about ourselves and human connection. And it is that I get the sense, and still, it is a sense just now, but maybe let me hear what you think about it, that we are turning, not not shying away from technology or, or saying AI is not whatever, but we are learning to appreciate or feeling a magnetic attraction towards things that are really raw and really human. Yeah. Like I've seen people going or valuing more live shows and first we interpret it as it is okay what's well, the pandemic and all of that we could not go but that's behind us and people still are going to that and and i think artists are touring more and i'm wondering uh, i'm going to ask like people from theaters if they feel anything like that because theater didn't die <laughs> because of that but maybe this is the time like i know i enjoy the advantages of technology and artificial intelligence but this is different this is my friend right like, I, I don't know I, I, but it's just a sense <laughs> do, do, do you what do you think about that i i think it is a good sense i think that people do crave those connections and things like that and i think with artists especially we tend to isolate a lot when we're working because it's a very solitary pursuit but i think once our work is finished 
then we get it out there in the world and we talk to people and we we want people to see it and we want people to come to it just like a theater would want people to come and see their actors and see their musicians and see their shows and it's that it's that human reaction that that we get it's that interaction and, yeah. and it makes that connection and i yeah. i because while the world has become more technical and things are, are the world in, in one sense is so much smaller now but in another sense it's so much bigger too uh we can get lost in that bigness and we lose our sense of identity and our sense of connection to other people and uh i know like my husband works from home now that started in the pandemic and his company decided that was a good thing to do and he does miss going to an office sometimes oh yeah you know you have the people and you know you the water cooler talks and blah 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 right um, and that is the one thing I miss about teaching is because I have students and the ideas and the back and forth and the exchange. So um, as an artist, I want people to to do that same thing. I want to do that same thing with people at shows when I go to these shows, even other artist shows. I love to talk to people. <laughs> That's a surprise, right? I love to talk. Mm. That's a <laughs> You're doing well. You're doing well. <laughs> So yeah, again, another long answer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we'll see. It, it doesn't have a definite answer, so we'll keep uh, witnessing what's happening to us uh, okay. as, as societies. And and also, not forgetting, at the same time, there is a huge part of humanity that have nothing to do with this, but AI, they couldn't care less about AI. They don't know it exists. Right. They need water. They need right. clean water and food <laughs> and shelter and and, and water to end. So... Exactly. This is our place. This yeah. is our very large round home. So, yeah. <laughs> and there are things happening in different rooms, and we should well just don't forget the house that's, is big. It's not that just our yeah. That's very true. <laughs> yeah. So right, Lee. It's been a fantastic conversation. Like I feel we could go for. <laughs> I don't know how much we've been talking, but at least another hour or more. So thank you very much for for your uh, openness and for for sharing this time. Um, on on our description for for the podcast episode of course people will have your handles for instagram oh, and facebook oh. on your website but if you well, want to direct people at this point to one hub which one would it be would it be your website um actually the website is probably the best one because on the invisibilityproject.org there's a contact form on there there's also a contact form on my personal website lease.art um and if there are people out there that that want their stories told and that want to be involved in this project um it's super simple they literally just contact me and then we do an interview and it takes a long time to make the canvases you got to be patient but um it's it's well worth it and i'm always open to hear people's stories and to connect with people on that level because sometimes sometimes people just need to know somebody is listening and i think that's a that's a huge part of it but yeah what about they, yeah they yeah, they could. They can contact me on any way if they want, even on social media. That's very easy. No worries. <laughs> and what about if they say, "Well, yeah, but I don't want to talk about that. I just want to buy your art." Then they could do that as well. <laughs> all right, all right. The website is the best place for that. I'll, I do not do things, and this is one thing that artists are really having to deal with. They really don't deal in crypto. We get a lot of requests to buy uh -huh. art by crypto. And the problem is, is there's so many scammers out there. You really can't tell what's real and what's not. So at this time, I avoid cryptocurrency. They got to do it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. But yeah, more than more than happy. I ship all over the world, so no worries on that. So yeah, yeah. and work is always a thing too. So yeah, no worries. Sure. The invisibilityproject.org, right? Yes. Yes. Is yes. there anything else that you'd like to say before we sign up uh, for this time? Because I, I think we need <laughs> another one. Well, no, I mean, thank you very much. And uh, if they want to see more of the work, Artist Talk Magazine, uh, Artists, or Arti Artist Talk Magazine, uh, Circle Arts, and there's two other ones that have just published me in there. And I'm showing in Artist Talk Magazine, they're having two ex exhibitions on Times Square, uh, New Year's Eve and on June 24th. And there will oh, be right. two of my pieces there on the big billboards. So they're like huge. <laughs> okay, so, so New New Year's Eve and June, and June twenty fourth. June yeah. twenty fourth. Yeah, then I'll be announcing those on my websites and on okay. on social media as well. Um, but yeah, Artist Talk Magazine, any of those types of art curator magazines, another one that's doing an interview. 
Uh, yeah, and they can contact me in any time, and I always give back to people. So I don't leave people hanging. So it's a thing. <laughs> so, Thanks so much, Lee. Yeah, and no worries. Melancholy has brought me joy once again. So thank, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was wonderful meeting you, by the way. And I love Spain. Wonderful country. Can't wait to go back. <laughs> oh, let me know. Let me know. Spain is a very, very interesting place. I always say it because it I, I've been living here for the last, what, 14 years. I'm originally from Venezuela. My dad oh, was from here, from Spain and this area. So we moved to this part. And the interesting thing about Spain is, is like, for example, the, it, the, there are, it's so different from one play, one part to another, like yeah. in terms of culture, uh, well, weather, of course. But I feel like the peninsula, including Portugal, is like the roundabout of very large civilizations because of what history uh, happened here, like from oh. the Arabs, from the north, the Romans came, and then it's over. And well, and now Latin Americas, Latin Americans are coming here a lot. No, so I love it. it, it it's love super it. interesting. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait to take my son and daughter-in-law next when we go. And uh, yeah, my husband and I, we had such a blast touring and just the museums and the history and the people and the food. Oh, my God. We had such a blast. It was so fun. <laughs> so well, know, we're, we are up north, uh, oh, west, Galicia, okay. right on top of Portugal. And oh, well, <laughs> yeah, actually, this part of Spain and Portugal were once one under one and the same kingdom. That's really? why the language here is called Galician which okay. is from Galicia, which is the area. And it is the mother language of Portuguese. It's, it's oh. an older language than Portuguese. Interesting. And, yeah. Yeah, they're very, very connected. Very connected. Yes, well, I can't wait. Can't wait to go back. <laughs> Great, so... Well, thank you. Obrigado, Lee. Obrigado. Oh, obrigado. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>